Welcome, everyone. This is a brief history of power. Kearney, Colonel, rather, Willie Grills and the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz here, once again, answering listener questions. Adam, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing well. It is a brisk 50-something degrees down from the high 80s yesterday, so I look forward <laughs> to missing a few weeks of recording due to, you know, viral pneumonia or something, so... <laughs> And how about out that way? Yeah, we're we're pretty cold today, but it's going to get back up to sixty tomorrow. So you know the well, suffering the suffering is very temporary. Right, we're we're creeping back up toward the eighties after this. So we got two <laughs> days in the fifties, and then then that you know. So do you actually have dinosaurs there based on that climate, or you know we uh, the search continues. I personally right. believe we do. Yeah. You know? We right. certainly have cryptids, and what is a cryptid but a but a fuzzy dinosaur? There you go, blurry. Yeah. Yeah, so there were, you know, the search continues. The Ozarks are big, and I'm certain that out there is something that would make Ken Ham very happy. <laughs> it's basically just country music, Walmart, and cryptids, as far as I understand. Yeah, you could do a lot worse. Yeah, you could do a you lot really worse. You really could. You really you could. Know? I mean, Alabama and Mississippi exist. <laughs> Uh oh, we lost. Uh, we lost. All, some, we lost. All some twenty-eight listeners. listeners from those states now logging. <laughs> no, off. no, no. Al- Alabama's great. It is. It is the most southern of the states. So keep keep doing you, Alabama. Interesting. Okay. I think you can make a fairly good case. It, it checks all the boxes in a way that no other state does. You know? There you go. It's like Texas doesn't know what it wants to be. Now Oklahoma's trying to be southern. I don't know what where we're living in where Oklahoma's trying to to be <laughs> part of anything. So. It's you know it's it's all very contentious at the meetings. Ever so. since it stopped being Indian territory, it doesn't know. Yeah, but it's right, Indian territory right again. Remember a couple of years ago, the Supreme <laughs> Court's like, "Yeah, you're Indian land again." Thank you, Neil Gorsuch, not living in the reality-based community. Yeah, I mean, kind of funny to see though, <laughs> based in a, in a in a backwards kind of way. So, all right, well, we're going to take a look at some listener mail, and the first thing we have is not really a question, but just. Just a nice uh, bit of mail that we received. So, Dr. Koontz, would you would you go ahead and let the folks at home know what we're talking about? Yeah, this is from uh, user Low Level Synod, and he says, I'm presuming it's he. Brothers, I enjoyed episode number 202. Apart from what we do and confess in our own lives and teaching in the parish, I think saying the quiet part out loud about our indefensible public position on contraception, as you did in this episode, is going to bear fruit. Well... Not with the generations before us, but those after. Thanks again. Well, thank you, low-level synod. I appreciate particularly that saying the quiet part out loud, or I I don't actually look at it maybe as quite that dramatic, but simply talking about things that we know people are thinking about is essentially the entire purpose of this show. Mm -hmm. We're not really here for another purpose except to indulge our own weird historical interests, which is what we do on like the Ad Astra episodes. Please see the most recent one (laughs) concerning both German small arms and rocketry, (laughs) which are our respective great interests. So, but otherwise it's, it's really to talk about things that I, that we know God's people are thinking about and asking about that. Otherwise we don't find many or, or in some cases, anyone discussing. Yeah, there there are some things we talk about here that you just can't bring up at a Bible study or something like that. They're not likely to get asked. The person who who is asked will um will you know uh 
I don't know what, what how do you want to say uh be ran out of the room sometimes or be considered boring <laughs> right. yeah right right exactly and so um yeah so there we go yeah and and that, and that's the thing it's it's kind of a cozy sort of sort of fireside sort of thing yeah and um you know it's, it's what we do it's what we do there you go uh, for the folks at home, I'll let you know, um, Zoom keeps like turning on and off my audio settings uh, as we record. So if it gets a little weird in here, it's, um, you know, it's not me. I, I keep seeing the, the sound setting I need flashing on and then it will go off. So <laughs> if I sound like I'm being zapped out of existence, it's, it's just Zoom. I, I, would, I would say one of the greatest risks that we run in talking about things that are not, are not usually talked about or or the forum to talk about them is, is often not available to people is that we, we run the risk of interference by extraterrestrial entities perhaps. And that's what's happening to Colonel grills this morning as we record. So we ask you to bear with us as we face these powers and principalities. 100%. The shadow people are actively involved in sabotage <laughs> up to and including the hat man. <laughs> What the folks at home don't realize is if I could make this into a 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. <laughs> shortwave radio show, I would do it. We would take live calls, and it would be great. It's, it's, it's going to happen. Right. These, this is merely the preliminary stage or one of many preliminary stages. Yeah, just, just be ready. You know, the, yeah. uh, because you won't be able to reach me on Discord once the transition happens. It'll just be a slow – you'll, you'll have to mail me or catch me on the call-in hours. It's going to be awesome. I'm ready for Hello, it. listener. All right. <laughs> All right. From the great state of Arkansas, <laughs> here in the United States Republic. So, all right. Well, let's take a look at some questions here. So, I want to read them mostly in their totality, and yeah. we'll just take them as they come. So, in the most recent episode on dispensationalism, Dr. Koontz and Colonel Grills briefly touched on the Septuagint versus the Masoretic Text. My understanding is that the Masoretic Text is a post-Christ rabbinic Jewish tweak on the Old Testament, inserting vowels and rendering the Hebrew with a particular bin, that bin being away from Christ. Some of the Septuagint Christological prophecies sound much more Christological and explicit than those in the Masoretic. Additionally, Christ and the Apostles quote the Septuagint in the New Testament. Unless I'm mistaken about these points, I don't understand why the Masoretic text holds primacy in modern Bible translations over the Septuagint. What has led to the complete dominance of the use of the Masoretic over the Septuagint, and is it worth reevaluating this priority? Well, this is a great question. Yeah. Just to answer the first part of the very end of that, what has led to the complete dominance of the use of the Masoretic over the Septuagint is that you have the understanding, and I think this is basically correct, and this is going to be the basis of other things I'm going to say about this, that the Hebrew text is the text used, the Hebrew, and part of it being, a very small part of it being Aramaic, is a text used by Jesus Christ when he is reading the scriptures, say, in the synagogue at Nazareth. That's a different question from the Septuagint being used by the New Testament because it is written in Greek in the same manner that I might be able to read the Bible in a different language than English, but when I'm preaching or when I'm teaching English speakers, I'm only using English. Kind of a similar thing there. One language is what you can read. Another language is what you're going to use to explain it to others. So the complete dominance of the use of, let's just say, the Hebrew text generally, not specific to the Masoretic tradition, the Hebrew text with parts in Aramaic, 
um, from Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel. That is just the basic Protestant insight that the scriptures are originally inspired in those languages. And so that's why we're using that language in the same for the same reason that the Protestant reformers used Greek to translate the New Testament rather than Latin as had been standard and as is the basis, for example, for the Douay Rem Roman Catholic translation, which uses the Latin rather than Hebrew or American Greek. I think that's a different question from the history of the Masoretic text, as well as text or let's say manuscripts that we now have, samples of the Hebrew Old Testament that we now have, especially because of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so the complete dominance of the Hebrew text of the Septuagint is because of really the doctrine of inspiration. But how you handle that in Bible translation is a different question. What you use, do you use the Septuagint for input? Do you not? And that that's a that's a different question and has to do, I think, partly with academic specialization, particularly in Bible translation. But that's the way I would begin to answer this. I think part of it is very simple. We use the inspired text of scripture, but part of it also pertains to various historical occurrences that have led to complete reliance on the Masoretic text, which, as a listener points out, I think he's he's very suspicious. I'm a little suspicious of some of these things. It has its own history, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so he brings up uh, the point about certain Christological things being downplayed in the Masoretic text. I think that's unequivocally true. Yeah. Where the Dead Sea Scrolls agree with the Septuagint, they don't always agree with the Masoretic text. Right. Uh, before we kind of dig into this, I will say there are only like one or two instances, kind of ironically, where the Masoretic text is more Christological. So you got a couple, but then we'll go to the other dozens of instances. Right. You know, right. Where, where the Septuagint is certainly superior to that. Right. You know, Dr. Kuntz makes a good point about the inspiration of the original autographs. However, one of the things, and don't label me as a lib here is that we don't have the original autographs now what does that mean you know <laughs> yeah, what, is, yeah. what does that look like and right. so we need a more robust doctrine of the preservation of scripture i think would help and that's where i think the septuagint really shines because that was the text that is providentially preserved and is quite obviously used in the new testament yeah. So I don't think that it's merely just a case of, well, it's just a translation of the original autographs. There certainly seems to be something very significant about the Septuagint. Yeah. I mean, to a greater, you know, like we can kind of LARP a little bit and talk about the King James that way for English, but the Septuagint is quoted by Christ and the apostles, or, you know, Christ and, and, and at least Paul, and then other people who might as well be apostles, right? And so, so what we have then is a question of, Okay, how does this come about? What what is the Septuagint representing? And it certainly seems to represent more closely the original autographs than the Masoretic text does. And I think the the thing is, a lot of these are very subtle changes. And oftentimes people will say, Well, the older manuscripts are the best. Okay, well then you've got a real problem with the Masoretic text then, because it's not necessarily the oldest. But they say, Well, what we mean is the Hebrew scriptures. Okay. Then you get into the question of text types and text bodies. 
So we find this codex, and it's older, but it reads different than what we've than what the church has been using. So obviously, the church has corrupted it. It's the modern approach to the manuscripts is, is very much an approach of suspicion, saying that what the church has been using is somehow deficient, and this thing that was cast in a wastebasket or whatever that was not used liturgically, we'll say, or not used in the public reading of the scripture or necessarily the private study of scripture is somehow superior. And you'll hear a lot of these same talking points and say the King James only crowd, and that's not what we're saying here. But I am saying that the text that the church uses should carry some weight with us. And and the fact that we can dust some unused manuscript off and say, oh, this represents something pure, is an argument that doesn't really hold a lot of water if, in my opinion, <laughs> you believe that the Holy Spirit's at work in the church. Yeah. I do think that preservation is something that we need to really seriously look at. And we don't often. We, we, we just simply don't. Because what you end up if you don't believe in some kind of preservation of the Word is you say that you, it becomes Quranic. So in the Quran, only the original Quran is inspired. And it's up in heaven somewhere, right? So we have these really close copies, or these maybe even exact copies. So you end up with something akin to, well, the scriptures were only ever when Paul first had his amanuensis write these letters down, for example. And then those were lost to time. Mm -hmm. But we have some pretty close things. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of my fear there when we start looking into a lot of this. And then when it, come, when it butts up against the question of the Masoretic text, okay, so, so you come up with two options. Well, then... The inspired authors are deviating from what was inspired, if you presume it's the Masoretic text. You know, and then so you've got all kinds of other issues there. And and you can end up you can go down a rabbit hole and find yourself saying, Well, we don't have an actual canon of scripture, or we don't have actually inspired ones in front of us. We believe at one point it was inspired, but we don't. Now nobody says that who is a Christian, but this is where you end up with a Bart Ehrman kind of guy. This is, this is the kind of thing that leads to that. And so, kind of get out in the weeds here off the Septuagint, but I think that the Septuagint is certainly representing something closer to what would have originally been written down than the later text was. And the dangerous thing in part of the Masoretic text is you could have a translation from the Masoretic text and still reasonably have the scriptures, and it won't cause you to go off into apostasy. But you can certainly see where certain aspects of the coming Messiah are downplayed. I don't think that that's really debatable. Yeah, and yeah, and the the famous example to know is Isaiah seven fourteen, which is of course mm -hmm. quoted by Saint Matthew. That Saint Matthew's language is directly reflected of a virgin shall conceive in the Septuagint, and not directly reflected yes. in the Masoretic Correct. text. Correct. Excellent example, and. You know, time doesn't permit us to, to go into all of these. Back in the Word Fitly Spoken Day, I believe we actually did do an episode or two kind of exhaustively covering this a little bit. It, it comes up into a question we're going to get in a little bit later on Seder meals, which is where people have a very um, Jew, later Jewish understanding of, of what yeah. actually was going on at the time right. of Christ. Right. We, yeah. we, we've, we fail to recognize the development that happens post-resurrection and ascension, especially post-destruction of the temple and the gospel going out into all the world, we forget just how, and we'll get into this a little bit more in a few minutes, how Judaism develops separately from Christianity 
and oftentimes in opposition to Christianity after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, which is the grounds, I think, for reading the Masoretic text, which is a product of, let's say, medieval Judaism carefully in its final form. It's a product of medieval Judaism so that you can spot where it diverges particularly from the Septuagint. But something I think is really important for people to understand when they are reading a modern Bible translation is that there is a holism in older translations that generally does not exist in the team that translates a modern Bible translation. Not meaning that an (laughs) older translation in whatever language, even the Luther Bible is not actually just the work of Martin Luther, for example, but that what happens is you get a divergence, Mm -hmm. division of labor between somebody who knows Greek really well, and he's going to work on the gospel of Mark, and someone else is going to work on the gospel of Luke, and then someone who knows Aramaic really well is going to get the book of Daniel, and someone who knows oldest classical Hebrew is going to get the book of Exodus. They're all doing that separately. They all have their own disciplinary priorities, and something that's normal for one guy is not normal for another. So in New Testament, it's very normal to use what are called the versions. That's everything that's not Greek, that is old, that is an old text of the New Testament, to to think through you know, okay, how did, how did, I'm not saying the Latin or Syriac is somehow inspired, but, but what did they say they thought this word meant? Like think about the word daily and daily bread, Mm -hmm. kind of a strange word. What did these other versions say? And that sort of can help you think through how ancient people might've understood this word so you can translate it well. That's not actually generally the case in Hebrew. The guy that's translating Exodus might not care at all or know anything at all about the Septuagint. So just the ways that people operate and the ways that things are extremely specialized. Unfortunately, none of that specialized. You're just reading a single complete Bible with Exodus and Daniel and Mark in it in English as a final product. But the people who produced it didn't really put all of that together except maybe the editor. Yeah, and and the meaning behind Hebrew, somewhat intentionally, is is a little bit plastic, rubbery. You know, we talk about the wax nose kind of canard, but you really have that with Hebrew in a way that you don't have with the other biblical languages. And it's interesting, like in the case of Greek, we can see what church fathers are doing with it. it you know, Hebrew, it, it, it always makes me a little bit suspicious when somebody goes, well, as the rabbis say, well, let's be a little careful there. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're, they, they obviously don't believe in Jesus Christ, and that might, just might, color a little bit of what they do, <laughs> right. what they believe. I'm yeah, just saying. Right. right, right, right. I mean, it should at least be taken with the same grain of salt that you would take Marcus Aurelius or something, you know, at least. <laughs> if not more, because the reason we have preservation of rabbinic tradition is because we have a certain percentage of ancient Jews who do not become Christians, right, by religious profession, and instead reject the Messiah who has come. And that's what that's how what we now call rabbinic Judaism begins to develop. Right. And then on the, the, the issue of Greek, I find it interesting. We We kind of have a picture of the world of Christ and and Paul as guys walking around speaking Hebrew all the time. 
and it just right. didn't happen. E- even then, right? It's 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 not in a lot of cases, near as we can tell, it's not even a home language. You know, it's it it's kind of been relegated even at the time of the New Testament to a very specific use sort of language, which really gives the edge to Greek. When Jesus is up and preaching, you know, what language is he preaching in? Greek or Aramaic? And I think you can make a very um, a very strong case that he's preaching predominantly in Greek. And some people would push back on that, and I'd be, and I'm, you know, that's perfectly fine. But I think you can make a very solid case, and and, and Paul even more so, for obvious reasons. Yeah. But we can't downplay uh, the importance of Greek, and and how and why the Septuagint becomes so dominant. Right. Yeah. And so, I, I, so what I'm saying is, Alexander yeah. the Great is a prophetic figure. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, in the case of Daniel, he literally is. You know, I mean, yeah, he's, he's right, right there. He's right there. There's a lot of debate about this, but it might be helpful to people to know that the extent of what's called classical Hebrew, that is the stuff that is not the stuff that is spoken in modern day Israel, but is written down in the Bible and is the basis of some parts of the Talmud and, and stuff like that. Nobody thinks that that was an everyday language for a large swath of any Jewish population anywhere. Mm-hmm. That the captivity, which is, or the exile, uh, depending on how you look at it, is so, so thoroughly changes your kind of base Jewish population that is in Mesopotamia and then returns piecemeal to Judea and Galilee that they are speaking Aramaic as a matter of course, and that when it says, for example, in in Greek, in the book of Acts, that Paul spoke to them in in Hebrew, what that means is the language of ethnic Hebrews. It doesn't mean what we call Hebrew, which may have at that point been a scholarly language, a religious language, but not not necessarily an everyday language for for almost anyone. Right. Yeah. Well, okay, so since we're kind of on this subject already, let's head over to the next one, which dovetails pretty nicely. Yes, sir. So, I've heard Reverend Fisk mention passing before that Christians should not celebrate Passover seders, and this is reiterated on the same episode of Brief History of Power, Mission, the First Question. I've gathered from my own uh, looking into this question that the reason is that it is falsely looking ahead to the Messiah, which of course is a false confession. Is there any additional re- reason to avoid this meal, and how should I make the case to my congregation in the past has done seders and years in which the Passover lies with Easter? Additionally, if we do not know what the Passover exactly looked like during Jesus' time, how do we know uh, wine is what was used in the cup? Does the fruit of the vine in the context explicitly mean wine within the context? Thank you for this show and for all your effort to teach and confess. Okay. I'll start off with the wine one, just to get it out of there. Uh, it yeah. can't mean anything else. Okay. <laughs> what what Dr. Welch has not been able to time travel and go back and pasteurize this. So, <laughs> right. best case scenario, it's you know new wine, but right. they they wouldn't have known anything else. It's not grape Kool Aid. It's not Dr. Pepper. Fruit no. of the vine is wine. I mean, if it were Dr. Pepper, like how beautiful and wonderful, but it's not, and it can't <laughs> it's be. It's not. <laughs> yeah, it can't be. But much as you might want to, you know. Um, and so there's that one. Now, let's go into the question on satyrs proper. And and why, or why not, uh, should uh, Christians celebrate them? Adam? Christians should not celebrate them for several reasons. The most basic of which is simply that it's 
regardless of what form you're using, because there are all manner of different Seder handbooks or Passover Haggadot. And there are constantly new ones are being composed. You can find one for all the different <laughs> streams of modern Judaism. The basic reason is that it's kind There's of great like, of worship in Judaism too. Yeah, oh yeah, totally. <laughs> Especially reform and, and reconstructionists. The basic reason is that you're kind of you're kind of play acting <laughs> something from a different religion. Yeah. So there's there's just a basic weirdness about it. Yes, that religion is historically very closely related to Christianity. In fact, I would say rabbinic Judaism is rooted today in the rejection of Jesus Christ. 100%. There are other things going on there, obviously, and it has all of its own millennia-long history now, but it is a reaction by those Jews who rejected the Messiah whom God sent to him. Okay, so th that's that's just basically weird to use an analogy that's going to make Colonel Girls uncomfortable this morning. <laughs> it would be like if we had Seder meals at Passover and then sometime around, you know, Pioneer Day in Utah, we all pretended to be Mormon pioneers. I mean, it's historically very closely related <laughs> to or taking taking notes right now. Right. <laughs> Got <laughs> to, ideas. To Orthodox Christianity, that doesn't mean we should do it even though it claims to be related to what we're actually yeah. celebrating. It's LARP. Yeah, it's, and, it's, and, it's weird. And here's the thing, you know, uh, and I'll make Dr. Kuhn's uncomfortable by, you know, you liturgio posting yeah. for a while here, but good. what connects us ritualistically to the ancient church is, is the liturgy, both it's the words used, the mannerisms, and all of those things. It's historic worship, and it's good, and very good case that that does go back to synagogue worship, and probably in a more pure way. And I say that to say, a lot of churches, I mean, Lutheranism and outside of Lutheranism, that do the Seder tend to be non-liturgical, or they have very much down, uh, downplayed the importance of the liturgy in some way. Yeah. And so then you have people who are hungry for authenticity, or for some kind of historic thing, and they believe that they've found it in the Seder. It's similar to Messianic Judaism that wants to go back to yep. what they think is New Testament Judaism, but really it's just kind of a watered-down form of Talmudic Judaism as far as the rituals go and things like that. Yeah. And so, in order to satisfy this feeling of, okay, we kind of want to ritualistically be part of something ancient, they've grabbed something that's really in most cases from the Middle Ages at best. Yeah, they find it in the in the kosher aisle at Kroger around Passover time. Here's the little liturgy, and we're going to do that, or wherever they find it from. And so having jettisoned a, an anchor that connects them to the past and to their fathers, they found themselves adrift at sea, and they want to sort of correct, at least for maybe one day a year, and so they, they think they find that in the Seder. And so it becomes akin to civil war reenacting in a lot of ways, except not as cool. <laughs> okay, now I'm uncomfortable. You know, yeah, <laughs> you know, but it's like, the, but but, yeah. but what it becomes are the guys who you know, who wear the gray all year round, right? And and so they think that they're doing something historic, and they're not, not realizing they have something more ancient, but also more real. Right. Reenacting a seder doesn't give you anything, but going into the liturgy. 
participating in the prayers, sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, receiving the the embodied Christ, the actual reality there. Yeah. Connects you in a contemporary way in that Jesus is literally there, but it also by virtue of doing what was handed down to you for generations through your spiritual fathers connects you historically to the New Testament right. in a way that the Seder cannot. Right. But I really do think for a lot of people it's this kind of hunger or at least a desire or mild curiosity about the way things used to be, but they're really not getting what they think they're getting. Right. And so that's the reason why. I mean, now to celebrate the Passover in a Jewish sense, which is looking forward to a Messiah that has already come, now you're into your theological issues with it. And so, so, so why do it? If you understand what Christian worship is, you already have the thing that the Seder is looking forward to. Right. Yeah. So, you know, why, why bother at that point? You right. Know? Yeah. It's like, right. it's like, it's like, okay, I lost my car keys. I found them, but I'm going to keep looking just in case. <laughs> And, and maybe maybe I'm overthinking it. Maybe people just want snacks in church. I don't know. Maybe that's what it is. No, I, I think you're right that they are they are looking for something that they believe is somehow deeply meaningful. And and particularly, and this is this is not just kind of your random super mushy middle Missouri Synod congregation that that does this. I mean, this is this is much New Testament scholarship claims to base its understanding of what Jesus supposedly meant in instituting mm-hmm. the Lord's Supper on medieval Jewish liturgy from a thousand plus years after Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. Rather than using the words of what he's saying and premising it not on Jewish liturgy, but on his sense of his death and resurrection connected to the coming of the kingdom. Yeah. Instead of doing that, they say, well, here's this thing that was written by somebody in like Warsaw in 978 and and that and and so Jesus actually was using 25 cups you know obviously I'm exact right. but it's like well, it's silly yeah and yeah. and we forget like you start looking at the dates when Jesus is instituting it it's not like he's there doing a one to one seder or anything no you know you look at the timeline and it's not like Jesus sits down to do you know the the seder meal and then just completely reorients it there he's doing a totally new thing right and we forget that too. I, I think that that's something we need to to sort of visualize. Is it's not like he sat down to celebrate the Passover and then said, Correct. "Oh, by the way, I rewrote this liturgy." No, this is yeah. something different. That's right. The households are missing. Yes. Right. Yeah. Your your children have a key role in the Passover in the in the, under the Mosaic law. Who? Where are they? Yeah. Where are they? Right. Yeah, they're see, they're missing because it's yeah, not the Christ same thing. Christ is the Passover. He is not giving you a new Passover liturgy. He's giving right. you something totally new. Right. And I'm not even convinced he had. He was taking all the. And this takes it'll be a longer discussion. I'm not 100 percent convinced they had the table set up for the Passover and Jesus just starts grabbing stuff out of there necessarily. Right. It doesn't have to be that. And now people are going to get really mad because this is something we just have assumed because they have gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And from that, we've extrapolated a whole series of events. Correct. Right down to leaven versus unleavened bread, yep. which, is a, which is a fun argument to have. You know, <laughs> It gets us back to the Greek because it just says bread. I, I, w- I was visiting, a, um, I, was, I was preaching at, a, at another congregation and and they served me leavened bread at both services. And I was like, this is kind of nice. 
<laughs> yeah, right. I mean, and, and then everybody digs into the church fathers and they're like, wait a minute, it's not, it's leavened and there's not individual little hosts. What's going on here? Now everybody's going to get mad. Yeah, well, well, everybody is like very, very firmly against individual cups until you but become lo- the, t- lo- the host. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. A, a question for another day. That's yeah, right. Let's let's split the difference. Let's have the let's have the the kumbaya moment here and say let's do leavened bread and one cup and just go with it <laughs> and see You're what by happens. Making zero people happy. So <laughs> right. Yeah. That, I, it is peace through making everybody angry. It's, it's worked very well for me. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's a very interesting thing to dig into what is happening on Monday, Thursday, where the timeline lines up, what the purpose is, that, you know, why Jesus, what Jesus is instituting and why right. and how and what it means for us. Now, while I'm very clear that he's giving a new thing, that new thing is also superseding all the stuff that came before it. And so the time for Passover Seders is gone. Yeah. The fulfillment of that has come. And that should be enough for us. Right. Now, I think there's probably a place in Bible study where you can talk about the Seder and what it signifies and how it's intending to point toward the coming Messiah. Sure. That, that's certainly. But, but right. to, to reenact it, I think so muddies the waters. Right. You might as What's well gonna, yeah. offer goats and, and bulls. I yeah, mean, why, why, why not? Right. Why not? You know, yeah. um, go buy a chicken. Because because you want to take all the later stuff anyway, so yeah, sacrifice a right, chicken. Right. But people will say, yeah, but I went to one and it was just so meaningful. And to that I would say, okay, I hear that. However, Jesus Christ, the Lord God himself, is present on your altar. He has come to sup with you and to feed you. That's more meaningful than reenacting <laughs> right. something. Right. Yeah, what you else know? are you looking for? I'm, you know, yeah, I mean, right. he's right there. <laughs> you know? Oh, as you eat, you know, uh, when the pastor says, take eat, take drink, he is giving you the body and blood of Christ. I'm going to be very careful with my language there. I almost said, as you eat it, it is the body of Christ, and then everything blows up. That's not true. You know, he it's already the, the body. It's already would the blood. You, would you say he's <laughs> physically present? <laughs> I don't want to start a Twitter war again. <laughs> Let me explain. Actually, I want to talk about this for a minute. Whatever Kaepernick eating means, we don't do that, whatever that means. What that's intended to mean is we're not chewing his flesh in a way that destroys it. But the narrow way simply shown says physical-based. Here's the thing. Okay, yeah, it's a mystery, all that, but we're speaking modern English, and it's a body. It's his yeah. body. Okay, right. so what else is a body? I'll answer it that way. Is that a safe way to answer that? <laughs> I think it's fine. I I I like it when No, when I, pe- I have no issue with it. Uh, yeah, you know. when when people explain things in words that are comprehensible to people today. Yeah, and that's what I got in trouble for. Oh, you're accusing us of sophistry. Well, kind of, because well, our listeners, the new listeners aren't going to know this. There's a lot of listeners out there that know exactly what I'm talking about, but Things blew up because it was said we don't physically eat his body. People left the Lutheran church over this <laughs> because they were totally scandalized. Like, why can't we just say you're eating his body and blood and leave it at that? You don't have to try to win the argument and say and use all these philosophical terms. He said it's his body. A body's a physical thing. So just eat the thing. Why is that so hard for simple Christians to grasp? 
Well, I mean, why is it so hard? Can why you is be it so a hard? simple Christian on Twitter? That's the question, Colonel Girls. Right. But the, yeah. the, in this case, the simple Christians were trying to grasp it, and somebody just kept coming in and trying to make it so much more complicated. Well, as the formula said, hey, guess what? They don't need that. Sorry. I'm not saying it's not true. It is. Formula is correct. But the point is, you receive his body and blood. Truly receive it. And that is the truth that the simple Christian should rest on. What does Jesus say? He doesn't go into a philosophical treatise. He doesn't go into a systematic treatise. Take, eat, take, drink, my body, my blood, for the remission of sins. So guess what you receive? His true body and his true blood. And so Christ is there. And when you start getting away from that, you end up sounding very much like what you accuse the Calvinists of believing. Namely, that the body is in heaven and nowhere else. Yeah. And if I wanted to do that, I'd still be in the Presbyterian church. But I don't. <laughs> and so that's kind of my thing there. We, the theology should serve the people. And it, and it should not serve to get us any points in debate. The whole point of what we're doing is to, is to give Christians what Christ commanded us we give them, especially as pastors. And Christ has told me to take bread, to bless it, and to distribute it to you. And as those words of institution are there, they are consecrated as the body and blood of Christ. There you go. There's your Passover lamb. There's your physical body. There you right. go. Right. So I think Narrow Way Simply Shown was absolutely based in its wording. It should have been. See, I try to avoid controversy, and Dr. Koontz just drags me into it, kicking and screaming. <laughs> I'm his berserker. If you would like to tell everyone about the physical body and blood of Christ Jesus, Narrow Way Simply Shown is out there to be repurposed. You can take the names off it. I don't care. Put your church's <laughs> name on it. Please use it. Because yeah. um, it's there so that people know the things that Jesus has given us to tell them. Yeah. And I just don't know why that became such a thing. And I rarely, like I'm on Twitter, I mostly use it to follow car crash videos and similar. <laughs> and that's all my feed is. Since YouTube Shorts has so right. disappointed you, yeah, <laughs> right. And it was, it was, it was the rare case where I had to wait in. And all I said was, "Christians, you receive his body and his blood. Don't let sophistry get in the way of that." You know, don't, or I, I think technically what I said was, "Don't let sophists confuse you." And then everybody got hurt over that. Oh well. It's weird how when you use the word sophist, people people are like, "Are you talking about me?" Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. I'm over here just trying to stop people from leaving the Church of Christ. Give me a break. You know, I you know, whatever. I don't care. Right. It's just one of these things. And we we just we forget about what we're trying to do here. I'm not trying to get you to be theologically correct. I'm trying to get you Jesus. I'm and and what I mean by that is I want you to be theologically correct, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to make you take advanced level systematics as a as a lay Christian and especially as a new Christian. Right. There's just no need for that kind of thing. That's why the catechism is written for the people, and specifically for fathers to teach their children, and not the formula. And, 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 and <laughs> the formula be... actually clearly says that, too. It's like, Yes, exactly. Like This, some... this shouldn't be a right. controversial take. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. These, these are for the theologians, and, and they need <laughs> to be clear about that, but not everybody does need to use all of these words and talk about Aristotelian accidents and substances. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. and we're and it's so funny because we're like, oh, reason that whore and we don't lean on reason. Well, you're yeah, well, you know. 
I see what you're doing out there, folks. Right. Yeah. So, look, to recap, you don't need a Seder. You have the reality, which is Jesus Christ himself bodily present for you on the altar. That is a unique and special thing. And whether you feel it emotionally or not, guess what? Jesus is there. And whether it's a mountaintop experience for you, every liturgy, guess what? Jesus is still there and still serving you. And so that should be enough to say, you know what? I don't I don't need a Seder. I don't need to go back to that. Right. I don't need to wear a kippah and keep kosher in order to feel connected to the people of the Old Testament. I am connected to the people of the Old Testament because through Jesus Christ, by faith, I am a son of Abraham. Yep. And so that's that's what I need, and that's what matters. Yeah. I'm connected to Moses in the same way. Christ has fulfilled the commandments for me. And yes, Christ commands that I live by those commandments. But nevertheless, here, here is Christ who has fulfilled all of them and more. The ones I'm not even under. You know, Christ has fulfilled the moral law and he fulfilled the ceremonial law, which, I, which we're no longer under. But I just, I worry with satyrs and with Messianic Judaism that we're going back into something that it, the New Testament makes very clear has passed away. It is truly Judaizing. And mm-hmm. you have to remember that when Paul talks about the past and an ism to which he used to be attached, yeah, it's Judaism. So, mm-hmm. so when you are when you are replicating the forms, the practices, the liturgies of rabbinic Judaism, you're doing the exact opposite of what Saint Paul says he did as he was called to Christ. Yes, yes, one hundred percent. And shouldn't be shouldn't really be a a hot take or anything, but it, but it is today. <laughs> no, it should not at all. Should be so completely frozen. Yeah. Well, now that you've plunged me headlong into the um, the waters of controversy, <laughs> controversy, uh, we will um, we will head on to the next question. I think yeah. we I think we hit every point there. I think so. Um, all right. So, taking a big turn here. I have a thought regarding episode one ninety two and the discussion on sacred geometry. Fun episode. We got to do more. This week before the episode, I finally watched Oppenheimer. Uh, one of the sub, I, I haven't watched that yet, and Adam doesn't believe in moving pictures, so I yeah I I I don't even they don't even exist. It's I mean, fine. I'm, They're not I even real. Pr- presently watching through uh, all the Dirty Harry movies for the thousandth time. That is where I am on on the movies. After that, it's with... Death Wish for the two thousandth time. <laughs> right, definitely. You know, I've got a statue of uh, both a Kentucky Colonel and Clint Eastwood in my office. If anybody is is you know curious, so yeah, can confirm. So one of the subtexts of the story that caught my attention and which I couldn't shake was the scene in which Dr. Oppenheimer, I want to say Oppenheimer for our Midwestern audience, <laughs> read from the uh, Bhagavad Gita, Now I Become Death, the Destroyer of Worlds. Which, by the way, Oppenheimer misquotes. I just want you to know that. He didn't quite get it right. But anyway, what I couldn't put out of my mind for the rest of the film was the idea that Dr. Oppenheimer was influenced by Hindu texts and their gods who are demons. Correct. As you and Colonel Grills were describing sacred geometry, esoteric, I'm the question, because we can't, should we? It occurred to me how Dr. Oppenheimer, a heathen, influenced by demonic writings. I, I love our listeners and their questions. I'd like <laughs> the secrets. Username, Cold War Paratrooper. Yeah, I don't know it. if this is my dad, but, <laughs> but whoever hey, you are, it could be my <laughs> right. dad. Um, whoever yeah. you are, great name. I was Go privileged ahead. to spend a few days in Denver with uh, with Clint Coons, it was, and I'm more blessed for it. Um, yep. Unlock the secrets of the hidden world, which unleashed the nuclear genie, giving us the capacity to destroy life on a scale never imaginable before July 15, 1945. Furthermore, it was chilling and beyond sadness watching the War Council deliberating which Japanese city should be the first to have a nuclear weapon detonated over it. Finally, I recently heard someone postulate that Hiroshima and Nagasaki were the two Japanese cities with the largest native Christian populations in Japan. I don't know if this is true. However, 
couldn't help but ponder how our evil foe could direct non-Christians to use a single weapon that would kill tens of thousands of people while simultaneously wiping out that country's largest Christian population, achieving a diabolical two-for-one, if you will. There is one last question in this directed toward me, and so I will, I will definitely be answering that, time permitting. Okay, excellent question here. Yeah. And so to kind of condense it, so Oppenheimer does seem to be, you know, somewhat a reader of Hindu texts. And so are they influenced by these demonic writings as they develop large-scale destructive devices? I, I, I don't really think that's controversial if you read the literature on this. I mean, even mainstream things published by Random House in the 90s. You can find that if you look at the spiritual lives of, let's say, the, the head honchos of the Manhattan Project, this is apart from something we've also discussed on the show, which is the military utility of nuclear weapons. We're talking about the spiritual nature of the people who develop the Manhattan Project is that they are very attached to the idea of similar to Jack Parsons with the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and a, a, a demon-like amount of control over unearthly and immensely powerful forces, forces the like of which man has never had or exercised control over. Yeah. And because there are parallels to things like that found particularly in ancient pagan texts of which Hinduism has probably the largest group to read, and also this idea that man in his power can become a god, lowercase g, or like a god, now, that sounds like Genesis 3 to me, but that idea is very influential for the people who are, I want to say, spiritually aware of what it is that they're doing in researching these forces. There are always, and this might be the predominant group, there are always people, especially in engineering and scientific projects, who I think are rather naively simply interested in the technical details and the work. But Robert Oppenheimer was not one of them. He was aware of what he was doing. He was interested in the capacity to control these things. And he was willing to sacrifice many things, including many, many, many human lives. And yes, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were the seat of the only church that made significant headway among any portion of the Japanese right. population, and, and which yes, is the Catholic Church. And yeah. yes, the Japanese are human. Yeah. yeah, despite what we might have thought at the time, some people might have thought, right? And that, and that's something that we we forget about. Like these, it's it's civilian humans, just large scale slaughtered, yeah. predominantly Christians. I can't be convinced that's a coincidence. They they, ha they knew this. They had to know what they're destroying. They don't just yeah. throw darts at a map and decide to bomb these two cities. Yeah, yeah, because, they, because yeah, they don't, they don't obviously not being Tokyo, they don't, and, and not even being, you know, the next place we were probably going to go. Right. Right. It's not Okinawa. We destroy instead two cities that, yeah, obviously they have utility, but it, it seems egregious and gratuitous that they would bomb the places. I mean, it's one of the few places in Japan where you could bomb a very large church that that people actually worshipped in. 
Yeah, and so you can kind of see where a guy reading these kind of texts, maybe you've seen the Akashic Records, we don't know. <laughs> but, um, right. you know, reading these texts could do it. But ultimately the blame falls on Truman, who we see is just this kind of folksy, old-time American president. And ultimately he makes the decision to drop the bomb, which is much more disturbing to me. Right. Because you expect guys who are in esoterica to be into some very dark stuff, but you, but you're not supposed to expect it from Truman. Which should shake us to the core a little bit more than even Oppenheimer in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, people are very concerned about how Biden, you know, how can he really be in charge? He's I mean, some giant majority of Americans of all political persuasions believe that President Biden is not actually mentally capable of doing his job. You know, if you look back, uh, not that that Truman was senile, mm-hmm. but that Truman, as essentially a a successful local machine politician, has zero capacity to understand what. It, and I mean, he was a vice president of an extremely powerful multi-term president, so he doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. He has he has no control over our our at that time rapidly burgeoning scientific military establishment mm-hmm. he he's not he's not making all these decisions right not not really i mean yeah he makes it he he gives the go-ahead yeah but the con the information provided the context the idea that this is something we're actually going to do you know truman is not i mean people don't get into the presidency people don't get out well, front on stage and that's all kind the time. of where i'm going that's, right. that's what should, that's what i mean that's what should right. bother you the most is just this kind of guy who by all accounts, should have known better or should have had a stronger moral compass, is right. able to just take intel from these people and then give the go-ahead to push the button. Yeah. You know, that's that's the strange thing. And we're far removed from World War II now, and it was kind of like our discussion in the previous episode about the loss of German life. We've, we've because of the way we look at World War II, we've so dehumanized the Axis and so lionized the Allies that we don't even think about what we did here. Yeah. And usually the argument is, well, if we didn't drop the bomb, then the war would have continued on and we would have lost more. That's not necessarily the case. We don't know that for sure. Japan's already teetering at this point. And so we just don't know what would have happened. But you still have, somebody still made the decision that we're going to kill all these people. And man has, anytime man takes a life, they are, whether justified or not justified, putting themselves in the place of God to one degree or another. And now you're doing it in a, in a very large scale, in a very simple way. We talked about the dehumanizing of air combat anyway. And now you can, from the air, drop these extremely destructive devices yeah. developed by people who are reading demonic texts. It should just give us a little bit of pause there. Yeah, well, and, and, and I'm, go ahead, yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, I mean, you're hitting not just the loss of life, but you're, you're tapping into technologies that clearly God was not meaning for us to mess with. I mean, you know, you you can, and this is where the Lutheran will come in and go, well, there is no commandment that says don't split the atom. Okay, fine. But there's also things that we're just not meant to mess with. And we do this all the time. Yeah, there, there's no explicit command not to mess with um, reproductive technologies, except the Lord opens and closes the womb, but we threw that one away a long time ago. Yeah. But, and, yeah and, and so we've done things. So we, we do things with technology all the time without thinking of the ethical implications. This one should be very simple. Should we develop bombs that have the potential to destroy all human life? And in World War II, we go, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. 
Yeah, and and we pin everything on that particular technology. It's interesting the way that we depend on it. I mean, if you say, well, there would have been a giant loss of American life, such as there had been enormous attrition and casualty rates throughout the Pacific War, which, I mean, honestly, for our purposes, is our main front in the, in World yeah. War II. I'm re- I'm ready to defend that. We were firebombing the home islands, right. Before and apart from nuclear weapons, just as we had firebombed Europe. So it's not like we actually needed this particular technology. If that's something you wanted to do is to firebomb civilians, you don't actually need to develop this technology that in the years thereafter, and this is something that Americans forget about the 1950s because on the right, we want it to have been paradise. And on the left, we have to act like it was the greatest horror of all time. But something, if you go back and you read literature or you or you watch movies or whatever from the 1950s, is a sense of dread that they had, knowing that having developed this, they had unleashed the potential to destroy all human life. Yeah. And especially for Christians, knowing how God, you know, how pro-life we are and how so much of what we have developed has been to improve human life, Yeah, this should really give us pause, something to think about. So speaking of improving human life, we have one last question. <laughs> one last question that we're going to tackle today. Question for Colonel Grills. Does one having a Faraday cage for one's electronic devices put one out there? I'm asking for a friend. Oh, yeah, absolutely, 100%. But I would also say listening to this podcast puts one out there. And on a Faraday cage, I would remind you, good friend, that you got to start thinking bigger. You know, you can put your phone in it, you can put your laptop, but uh, if you're industrious enough, your garage can become a Faraday cage. Let the reader understand. If you're worried about the EMP going up and your car working, start to work in your garage. You'd be surprised what a metal garage can do for you, you know? And, uh, you know, just start thinking, you know, it could happen. It could happen. You maybe have a horse for backup, but your car can keep going if your garage is built correctly, so... We're going to slowly turn into the Out There Bob Vila podcast. Just, just <laughs> something to ponder. Just something to think about. Something to chew on as we, uh, as we conclude this episode. So, good doctor, are there anything, anything else you want to leave the folks at home with before we sign off? Uh, just my thanks for the excellent nature of your questions. And there are fantastic ones we didn't yet get to today. It's always fun, and it is such a joy for me to see how intelligent and engaged and godly our our people are thank you yeah absolutely it's just excellent audience excellent questions and really giving us some stuff to to chew on here uh, when we do these episodes so this has been a brief history of power i'm colonel grills with dr Kuntz. you know where to find us are you interested in entering into or fostering a biblical marriage if so set aside may 3rd to 5th 2024 and join other young Lutherans and keynote speaker, Dr. Adam Kuntz, that's me, for a conference on biblical marriage at Grace Lutheran Church in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Come and learn what it means to have a godly marriage, participate in the divine service, meet like-minded folks, enjoy fellowship, and even learn a barn dance. We welcome singles, couples looking to get married, the newly married, and families. If you're a young couple, bring your third wheels because you just might end up with a fourth. Don't hesitate and register today at whatgodhasjoinedtogether.ca. That's all one word, whatgodhasjoinedtogether.ca. Your marriage is worth a trip to the Great White North. A Martyr's Death, The Hero's Life.
the theme for the 10th Men's Gathering, being held this year at Lakeview Villages on April 4th to 7th. We are thrilled to have secured Pastor Brian Wolfmuller as our main speaker this year. Join 150 Christian men to learn how the martyrs of the early Christian church still preach to us with their lives, their lips, and their blood. Arrive as early as Thursday for a special Bruise and Cue session with Pastor Wolfmuller, or stay as late as Monday to watch the full solar eclipse, which will be directly over the villages. Visit mensgathering.us for more details and to register. We hope you can join us at the 2024 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power. Are you tired of people saying that you must accept the crumbling of Christianity? Are you looking for a place that hasn't embraced the new normal? A church that isn't taking the decline of Christian culture, families, and congregations sitting down? Are you looking for reverent liturgy and biblical teaching that proclaims the mercy of God and instructs you in holy living? Then visit Mission of the Cross Lutheran Church in Cross Lake, Minnesota, where people come for the beautiful lakes, but they stay for the church, where we are reclaiming Christendom. Are you looking for a Christ-centered healthcare provider? One that values life no matter the stage and knows that we are made in the image of God and thus have inherent regenerative abilities? Or are you a healthcare provider looking to escape the increasingly woke system that employs you? Direct eCare can help. We are a concierge telehealth company founded by a cradle Lutheran who takes his God-given vocation seriously. We offer our patients direct, unfettered access to our providers with unlimited, as-needed telehealth services for only $35 per month or $370 per year. We are currently able to provide care to patients in the state of Idaho only, but are actively seeking providers in other states that would like to partner with us to start their own direct e-care clinic. Whether you are a prospective patient or an interested provider, you can learn more at www.directe-care.com.